So, Paul, I really want you to know there's going to be nachos at game night. So, if you, if you don't come for the Jesus stuff, you can always come for nachos, right? Hey, I'm just curious, uh, how many of you felt the earthquake? Yeah. Wow, not as many as I thought. How many of you didn't feel the earthquake? How many of you are afraid to raise your hand at church because you're afraid something bad is going to happen? Dude, come down here right away. Yeah. I just wanted to know. Some of you probably think it was a hoax. I felt it. It was kind of cool, actually. Did it scare anybody, or was it like a great experience? I don't know why I feel compelled to tell you this, but I was in India on a mission trip, and there was a pretty big earthquake, and I was sitting in the room, and the whole room's like shaking, and I'm thinking, this is the worst constructed house I've ever been in. <laughs> and then I can hear people screaming outside. I was like, oh, this isn't the house at all. And so we all ran outside, but I just remember being like, this is the strangest experience. If you're not used to it, it is a strange thing. Hey, we are in this uh, series uh, that we've called Hope Restored. It's been for the whole month. We'll have uh, one more. We'll be going at it next week. And I am more convinced now that we started the series than I was even when we began it, that there is this critical element to having hope. That without hope, uh, even in a conversation I had just before church, like there, there's something... Uh, that just derails us when we lose hope, right? We even talked about it from an athletic perspective. We talked about it just, there's something about having hope or not having hope that can be pretty catastrophic. So really, this series has been about how do we navigate life and still keep a great sense of hope? And, and it's just, it's been a wonderful look at that. I would encourage you, uh, if you haven't been here, to go back and get the CDs or, or go on the line. And um, does anybody still use CDs? I don't even know that I have. I don't think I even, uh, Yes. You're, you're old, Madeline, just so you know. Hey, anyway, get, you can go online, you can download them, you can listen, you can subscribe to uh, uh, all the talks, but I would just encourage you to listen to them. So grab your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, eventually, I'm going to get to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to talk about it, but I do want to go back and sort of recap where we've come so far in this series, because everything we've talked about is really foundational to having hope, and, and you kind of need to have all of that, and some uh, repetitiveness will help you to, to retain it, but for those who haven't been here, it'll help you to kind of get uh, your, your arms around where we've been. We started the whole series using Proverbs 13, 12, kind of as a framing for what we're talking about, and that proverb says that hope deferred makes the heart sick, and what we're, what we're kind of saying there is anytime you have a dream, anytime you have great hopes for something, and, and that hope or that dream doesn't happen or it's even delayed more than you ever would have expected that something happens inside of us that we become prone towards what I just have been calling heart sickness. There are disappointments in our lives that create deep hurt and disappointment and can, if we are not careful, steal whatever sense of hope that we have. We used Psalm 42 and 43. I told you that at the earliest manuscripts, those are one Psalm, and we looked at King David and, and what he was going through in his life at that time. It was a difficult season. He was suffering from some hope deferred. Things had gone in a way that he never would have, have dreamed of or wanted, and so he was, he was sick within himself, and he writes these Psalms, and he says these words in Psalm 42 actually says the same words three times. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? And then he calls himself to something more, and he says, hope in God. 
right? And we talked about how David engages in this self-talk that you need to pay attention to what you're saying to yourself. What do I say? No one talks to you more than you, so you better pay attention to what you're saying to yourself. So here's David having some internal dialogue. He's actually talking to his own soul. Why are you downcast, soul? Why are you so down? You need to place your hope in God. And so there was this uh, piece that we pulled out of the passage, what we called this intentional 360 perspective, that whenever you are journeying through difficult circumstances, that, that it, it's not, uh, we're, we're not saying that you deny that you're in those circumstances. We're not saying that you ignore those circumstances. You don't go into some, some psychological denial. That's not what this is about. It's about while you're in the circumstances, still having the ability to lift your eyes and take this 360 perspective. So we see in that Psalm, David looking back at where he's experienced God in his life, and we see him looking forward to what God's going to do. So the last couple weeks we've been unpacking, well, what do we know about God when we look back, and what can we know about God when we look forward? We looked at the resurrection and and what that means for us, the resurrection of Jesus, and we looked at at the future resurrection, and what does that mean? And so that we can have this greater perspective that God is up to something. It goes back to what John even said when he started the worship service. Like, sometimes we just need to know what the truth is, even when we don't feel it. David wasn't feeling everything that he'd want to feel, but he knew something about God, and he called his soul to something more. Last week, Pastor G did a great job of, of taking us to this idea of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation, and he used a psalm and Lamentations, which is another example of this intentional 360 perspective, Lamentations 3, 19 through 24, says, remember my affliction, all of my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. You can hear the writer, Jeremiah, saying, look, there are rough things going on. I'm in a season of disorientation. I don't like the way I feel. I don't like the things that I'm experiencing. I don't like the things that I see. My heart is sick, right? But he continues on. He says, but this I call to mind, right? He begins a different kind of self-talk. And therefore, I have hope. When I remember these things, when I engage in the right kind of of internal dialogue, I begin to have hope. And what does he remember? He remembers the steadfast love. Anybody know what that word is? Very good. We talked about it so much in over the last several weeks, but that's kased. That's that radical love of God, that, that love that seems just hard to even understand and explain. When we see the word steadfast love, that's what it's all about. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new. Or never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. All right, so, so those are some of the foundational pieces that we've put in place. I want to talk about just two more real quick, a couple more truths that kind of set this whole series up. We showed you that how in the scriptures, that, that it's very clear that Jesus is present tense, currently making all things new. So he says in Revelations, I am making all things new. And the hope that we can find in that is that we are invited, this is one of the most exciting things about walking with Jesus, is that we are excited to be a part of the making of all things new. 
that God and Jesus and our relationship with Jesus is inviting into that process of renewal, that process of, of things coming together. So what we said is that everything done in the name of Jesus contributes to this new world that God is making. Every act of love, every act of justice, every piece of art is contributing to the eternal work of God. And that ought to give us a sense of, of doing something and be a part of something that's greater than our wildest imagination. I used N.T. Wright, who said that we're not oiling the wheels of a wagon that's about to be pushed over a cliff. We're not planting flowers in a garden that's about to be dug up. And that picture of con contributing to something bigger gives us a sense of hope. It gives us a sense of purpose. It gives us a sense of meaning. But in the midst of doing all of that, we all experience setbacks. We all have moments of heartache and loss. And, and the thing is, I talked about this, but it's not just the catastrophic things that create heartache. It's not even just all the series of little things that can sometimes create heartache. Sometimes it's when we just see injustice that's systematic in the world. I was talking about that going to India and sitting in the house. I remember the first trip I ever took to India and seeing the oppression of the Dali people, millions of people who are told that they're not even created by God, and then they are oppressed and held down and abused. And I just remember how it just, it made my heart sick, right? When you see that kind of systematic oppression, and you don't have to go to India to see it, but there is this, this ability, if we really want to see, to, to, to begin to see the injustice of the world, and that can be part of the the moments of disorientation of where you, you kind of feel a sense of hopelessness and have to be intentional about looking to God to find our hope. So again, G talked about these, these three different seasons that we three, see throughout the Psalms. Orientation, orientation is that time in your life where everything makes sense. God is good. God is so good, this is the honeymoon, this is so great, everything is perfect, my kids are listening to me. That's never actually happened. No, it has, but you know what I'm saying. So it's, it's just where it just seems like everything is happening perfectly. And then there's the seasons of disorientation. And that's where you, all you can say is like, what in the world is going on? You know, just what the what? The what? <laughs> like why? How? I don't get it, God. This doesn't make any sense to me. We see this in the Psalm 42 passage. But then there's this third season, and that's where we're going to spend our time today, and we're going to see in the Second Corinthians passage, this season of new orientation or reorientation. And the thing that we have to see is this rhythm is played out over and over and over in all of the heroes of the faith. When we begin to look at their lives, we see orientation, we see disorientation, and then we see new orientation. And if that's true, then we ought not to be thrown off when it happens in our own lives. When we have these seasons of, of difficulty or pain, we, we see that or something profound that God is up to. Okay, that brings it. You guys were wondering if I was ever going to get there, but I'm there. Well, now we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to start reading in verse 1, and I'm going to read through uh, verse 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse three, it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction 
with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same suffering that we have suffered. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our suffering, you will also share in our comfort. Verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, there's that word, that we have, he will deliver us again. Verse 11. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. On that note, let me pray for us. Lord, I do pray that you would just give me wisdom as we unpack this amazing passage of scripture. Lord, I pray that we would hear what you want us to hear. I pray that there would be uh, seeds that take root in our heart, that those seeds would, would grow and that they would bear fruit a hundredfold. Uh, we prayed this morning, we pray every morning that uh, we would leave church different than we came because we've interacted with the living God, that we would never be satisfied with checking a box or uh, just uh, doing our thing and coming to church, but our expectation would be that the Holy Spirit would speak to us, that would move in us, and that we would be transformed uh, more and more into the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. It's actually uh, really quite remarkable when you do step back and you look at the narrative of scripture and you begin to see how God uses seasons of disorientation uh, and these seasons of intense difficulty to bring uh, the different people that that, that that particular passage is talking about to where God needs them to be in order for them to do the very thing that God wants them to do. So let's just think about a few of those instances. We'll talk about Moses, we'll talk about David, we'll talk about uh, Joseph today, but, but think about Moses, right? There's a moment in time where Moses knows that he is being called to play a part in the liberation of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. He knows that God wants to use him for that. And, and so almost immediately, if you read that story, as soon as that becomes clear to Moses, he also goes through this incredible season of difficulty, right? He, he actually ends up spending years and years being prepared through difficult circumstances in order to have the character and the abilities necessary to carry the weight, if you will, of the good things that God has called him to do. There's something that happens in the seasons of disorientation when we respond the right way that God uses us to, to prepare us for exactly what God has for us to do. And here's what's imperative this morning. If, the, if there's one thing you walk out with, this is, this is probably it. It's imperative that we start with the understanding, the biblical reality, that just as God has called the heroes of the faith to specific tasks, to, to specific outcomes, he's called those big shots to do something. He has also planned and, and come up with specific tasks and outcomes for each one of you. 
Let me say that again. It is imperative that we start with the understanding. It's a biblical reality that just as God had specific tasks and outcomes in mind for the heroes of the faith, he also has specific tasks and outcomes prepared for each one of you. Now, just so you know, I'm not making that up. One of my favorite verses in scripture is Ephesians 2.10. It's shaped a great deal of what I do and how I do ministry, but it says what? It says that for we are God's workmanship. It's gonna pop up here on the screen any second now. <laughs> See that? <laughs> that was pretty good. So we are God's, that was coincidence. I don't want anybody to think I have any. Yeah. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This word workmanship, you've heard me talk about it if you've been here for very long. It's the word poema. It's the word we get poem from. And all it's saying there is you are God's masterpiece. You are designed in a particular way. You are designed with particular skills and talents and acumens. God has made you exactly the way he wanted to make you. You are a work of art. And just like you would write a poem for a particular purpose, you'd write a poem to convey a particular message to a particular group of people, there would be a reason that you would sit down and write a poem. There was a reason that God made you this masterpiece, and it was to do good works that he prepared in advance for you to do. In the same way he prepared things for Moses, for David, for Joseph, for any of those heroes of the faith, God has prepared something for you to do. And something profound happens in our lives when we begin to sink into and understand what is it that God has prepared for me to do. That's why when we tell you about our six essentials here at Grace, that you need to have all six of these in your life. The six essentials are that you gather. That just means that you make coming in this room a priority. There is something that happens in the larger gathering that can't happen anywhere else. I don't know that I can explain it. I just know it's supernatural. It's what God has designed that you need to make being a part of church on a regular basis, something that you do is part of your spiritual growth. There's something that happens here you can't recreate. When I hear people say, hey, I'm a Christian, but I don't like church, I don't do church, I th I, that's a warning to me. I don't think it's possible to walk faithfully with God and not have a community of believers around you. So if not here somewhere, you need to be part of a, a gathering that you need to connect. And this is where we just talk about it's not enough to show up on Sunday. You need to be with people who you can have deeper conversations, people who will challenge you, people who you can challenge, people who will pray for you. And we'll see that a little bit more in the Second Corinthians passage. I'll come back to serve. Devotion is not that you do devotions, that's important, but that your heart is fully devoted to God. You're, the eyes of the Lord seek throughout the whole earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully devoted so he can show himself strong. We want your hearts to be devoted to God, that you're generous with everything that God gives you. When God pours something into you, that you're willing to pour that back out. We're gonna see that in the passage today too, and that you be people of influence. Sharing your faith. Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have, right? That's what that means. But one of these critical elements in your spiritual journey is to serve. And it's there, not because we need you. We do need you. We can't pull off church without you. But this isn't about serving. It's not about, hey, we just need more guys in the parking lot, which, by the way, we need more guys in the parking lot. But that's not what this is about. The idea isn't even that you serve necessarily here. And just so you know, it's a great thing to serve in the parking lot. I'm not saying that is a bad thing. It's a great thing. 
But the whole idea of serving is that you are living on purpose. You are living out the Ephesians 2.10. What are the good works that God has called you to do? And what I would say is you're never going to discover those as long as you're sitting in your seat. You have to get up and you have to begin to serve in order to discover. And sometimes in the very act of serving, you don't discover what the good things God prepared for you to do are. You discover what they aren't, which is just as helpful. Because then you begin to narrow down, well, I just went and I served in the children's ministry, and what I know for sure is that's not the good work that God has called me to do. <laughs> it is the good work that God has called you to do, but it's not, the, and that's okay. So, but what I'm telling you is get up, get out, go serve in a, in a soup kitchen, go serve in Eagle Sports, go teach a kid to read, just serve. And as you serve, God will begin to make it more and more clear, this is the good work that I have prepared for you. And when you begin to do the good work that God has prepared for you, something life-giving comes out of that. It becomes just in, thank you. But here's the kicker. Here's, here's the crazy part. You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do a good work. He prepared in advance for you to do, and you are incapable of doing it without God. You get that? God prepared you to do something, but he prepared something so grand that it is impossible for you to do it without God. So that brings us all the way back to our passage, which I know you were wondering if that had anything to do with it, but it does. So 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 8, Paul says these words, I I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. This is his disorientation. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death, but that was to make us rely on our, excuse me, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. He's saying we were in such a bad way, utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself thought I was going to die. And I just want you to know, this is not hyperbole. Every time I work out, I think I'm going to die. I never really, (laughs) maybe I should work out more, that's true. But I never really think I'm going to die, right? And we use that phrase, man, that almost killed me. Like when Paul writes, this is not hyperbole. He really thought, he and Timothy, they really thought we are going to die. Whatever the affliction was, we don't know what it was. We don't need to know what it was. What we do need to know is it was a pretty big deal, and it was pretty disorienting, right? It, was, it would have caused Paul, who had this calling to do good works on his life, it would have caused him to say, really, God, this is how it's going to end? Right, you called me to do all this stuff, and, and this, is the, this is how it's all going to come to an end? I thought I was going to die, but then he writes these words. He says, but, this, but th- that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but the God who raised the dead. The super apostle Paul, the guy who wrote so much of the New Testament, the the greatest church planner apart from Jesus ever to live, right, has to learn the lesson in a season of disorientation of not being self-reliant, but being God-reliant. God has called him to a good work, and Paul is trying to do it in his own strength and do it in his own way, and so God has to take him through a season in order to shape his character in such a way that he can carry the weight of the good work that God has called him to do. This had to happen so we would rely on God and not on ourselves. 
This repeats itself over and over and over in the biblical narrative. Orientation, disorientation. And then in the season of new orientation, a, a ministry, a, a serving that, that flourishes. So let's just think about a few of those examples. David, King David. A lot of you know the story of King David, but, but he's just a kid. He's hanging out with God. He's watching his dad's sheep. Uh, if you, you, know, you see those early stories, it just sounds like he was just... Uh, love and life, right? He's out there in those pasture fields and it's just great community with God and with those sheep and David loves nature. And so he's just, he's having a blast. You know, he has these moments where a bear comes and he gets to kill it and then a lion comes and he gets to kill it. But you know, everything he does seems to work out pretty good. And David's still just a young man when this, this guy comes along and anoints him to be the heir apparent to King Saul. You are the next king. He's just a kid. He's anointed to be the next king, Right? And then he gets this invitation to serve in the king's house, to serve King Saul. And then he becomes this warrior. And if you read those early things, everything David does prospers. Everything David does is, I mean, this is when he gets to kill the giant Goliath. Like, like let's just think about it. David's got to be like, man, God is good. All right, this is orientation at its finest. Everything is cool. Everything I do works. I kill the giant. I get to hang out with the king, right? This is an amazing season of orientation. God is, yeah, uh uh-oh, it's right. God is good. But Saul becomes jealous of David, and so he tries to kill David. He kind of puts a a hit out on him, and so David goes on the run. And if you read that in in the scriptures, it's a blip on the map. You read it, and David's on the run. But what we don't realize is seven to 10 years, probably, that David was on the run, living in caves, having to live in a foreign country. He can't go back and see his family. He's ostracized from the, the people that he loves. He is literally on the run. And suddenly, when we read those Psalms, David's like, what? The world are you doing, God? After all the ways I've served you and honored you, why is this happening to me? Why do evil men prosper and I am living in a cave? I mean, you read those Psalms and David is disoriented and he's like, God, what the what? Why is this happening to me? Right? But as we read the story, we get the, the, the benefit of hindsight. What we see is God is using this season of disorientation to reshape the character of David so that his character can carry the weight of the kingdom. He's teaching him to trust in him in the difficult and hard times. And here's what you need to hear. If you cannot trust God in the hard times, you will never trust him in the good times. All of that was necessary to prepare David for the good work that God had prepared in advance for him to do. Think about Joseph. You guys know Joseph, remember dude with the really cool coat? That guy, they made a musical after him. That one, yep. The youngest of a bunch of sons in a patriarchal society where every number down in sons is a little less uh, seniority, uh, but he's, he's way down on the list of sons, so he's really in a lowly position, but he has a dream that someday his, his brothers and even his dad were going to bow to him, and in his arrogance and pride, whatever, he shares that with his brothers. Hey, dudes, this is really cool. Someday you're all going to bow to me. Didn't go over well, as you can imagine, so his brothers beat him up. 
throw him in a pit. I'm giving you the quicker version. It takes a little longer to read it, but just so you remember the story. They beat him up. They throw him in a pit. They sell him. He becomes a slave. That's a pretty bad day, right? From orientation, this is a good dream. <laughs> I like this God. This is awesome. To disorientation, I'm now a slave. Not just a slave, but then he gets accused of attempted rape. Goes to jail for several years where he languishes in prison. You got to believe he was asking the question, really? What happened to my dream? God, what happened to what you said you were going to do? Where, where are you, God? You know, remember when David in Psalm 42, what does he say? say my, my tears cry out, where is your God? David must have been saying in the cave, where are you, God? And Joseph in prison, where are you, God? What about all of those things you said you were going to do, right? But in hindsight, we can see that what God was doing was preparing Joseph for the weight of the ministry that he had called him to. He was preparing his character to carry the good works that God prepared for him to do. He was teaching him to trust him in difficult seasons because if you can't trust God in the hard times, you will never trust him in the good times. This was a forging of Joseph's character to bear the weight of the good works he had called them to. So when we go through seasons of disorientation, we are in a place where we have the opportunity to turn towards God. And when we do, we will discover something profound about God. We discover a deeper knowing of God. People tell me this all the time when I walk with them through uh, horrendous circumstances. People who have been had, had a terrible diagnosis with cancer or whatever it is, and they walk through that season, or they've lost someone who was very close to them, maybe a, 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 you know, a spouse or a child, and, and they've walked through that. There's a point in time where I'm with them, and quite often what the person will say to me is, in that season, I would never want to go through it again, but I discovered something about God that I never knew. I learned something about God. I knew God in ways that I never knew him before. God showed up in the midst of my pain in ways that I never could imagine. And again, I don't want to go back to that. No one has to want for disorientation. But if we look to God, he shows up and we learn something about God and we discover something about God that becomes part of the very ministry that we do. Back to the 2 Corinthians passage. Look at verse 3. Paul says these words. He says, Blessed be the God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. There is a lot to celebrate in these two verses. There is a sermon or three or four just in these two verses, but I'm just going to give you a couple takeaways. The first one is right there. It says, God is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our affliction. This is great news. In the midst of your disorientation, in the midst of your difficulties, in the midst of your brokenheartedness, in the midst of the difficulties that you have, when you turn to God, he is saying, I will comfort you because I am the God of all comfort. But here's the challenge, folks. We have this ability, or I would even say this propensity, to short-circuit this incredible promise of God. We tend to turn to everything else instead of God. So let me explain this to you by way of confession. 
This still happens to me, and I still wonder why. When I am in a season of difficulty, when I am highly stressed, when things haven't gone the way I want them to at home, or things haven't gone the way I want them to here at the church, when, whenever there's this sense of disorientation, I find myself standing in front of the refrigerator with the door open. <laughs> right? And it's funny, but it's sad. Because I'm not standing there because I'm hungry. I'm standing there because I want comfort. I'm standing there because I am not settled in something in my spirit. So somehow, in my mind, if I get something out of the fridge, it's going to bring some level of comfort to me. Some of you have to have a smoke to take the edge off or a couple glasses of wine at the end of the day just to, to relax, to, to feel better. Those, you you got to ask yourself, what's that all about, God? What is it that you're... Go, what, what is it that you're trying to show me? Am I seeking, and it's not always this way, but it's worth asking a question, am I seeking to get comfort from something other than God? This could be pornography. This could be sports. This could be just your, your favorite hobby. This could be as easy as just sitting in front of the TV watching nothing. Chances are if you're watching TV, it's nothing. So, right? I mean, we can all agree to that, but somehow we can just lose ourselves as an escape mechanism, as a way of seeking comfort when it's God who says, no, if, just so you know, I am the God of all comfort. One of my life verses, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that God has for them. Whenever we cling to Oreos instead of God, we forfeit that God of all comfort promise that we see in 2 Corinthians. It's an amazing picture. And we all have this tendency or this propensity. And the question becomes then, what do I do? How is it in the midst of that, that I can lean into God and get what I need from God and not lean into other things? And so we see it in the passage. Part of it is just recognizing it and turning to God in your own prayer life, in your own devotions, like saying, God, I am miserable. We see it in the Psalms. Be honest with God. Tell him that you're, you're upset. Tell him that you're not happy with the way life going, and then invite him into that. But there's something else that we see in the passage that I think is phenomenal. Can you throw that next slide up? Well, I don't have it in my notes, but I had him at it. So if you look at the very end of the passage, verse 11, he has this, this beautiful picture of Paul actually helping us to understand how is it that we are to lean into and glean the comfort that God has for us. It says, you also must help us by prayer. What if in the moment of disorientation, the text went out to the people you know would pray for you? He said, look, I am not well in my soul. I am a little messed up in my thinking right now. I am struggling to see the goodness of God amidst this. Would you pray for me? Would you lift me up in prayer? That's why you need to be connected. That's why you have to have more than just Sunday morning so that those people will pray for you because there's something that happens in the prayers of many. When we turn to something other than God for our comfort, we miss out on the very thing that God has us. The second beautiful thing that comes out of this passage and it's important for us to realize the passage says so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God we become carriers of comfort when we turn to God and we receive from God, that becomes the very fuel, the very thing that God uses in us to minister to others. 
This is why people have, that have been through major seasons of disorientation and turn to God, this is why the good work that they do is so much more productive on the backside of that because they know God in a way and they've received something from God and then they're able to give that back. Perfect example of this is, and you guys have heard me talk about this if you've been here very long more than once, but Meg and I struggled for the first 10 years of our marriage. It was terrible. I said last night that it was as bad as it gets. Meg said, I don't know if it's as bad as it gets. Okay, I don't know if it was either, but it was pretty bad. Okay, we can own that. But when we both surrendered to God and began to follow Jesus, he began to bring grace and mercy and healing into our marriage. And we have a a great marriage now. So you know what that means? It means that we can sit with couples who have no hope for their marriage and we can have hope for them. With the comfort we received as we learned to walk with Jesus and him to save our marriage, we can help others to have that same effect. Something about what God has has done for us becomes the very fuel by which we are able to minister to others. It's a beautiful picture. So the... It's the redemptive reality of God. He uses pain, he uses difficulties, he uses disorientation to equip us for the good works that he has for us. Now here's the caveat that I just wanna make sure I say. You do not have to go create the disorientation. You do not have to wreck your marriage so that God can redeem it, so that you can help others to have a redeemed marriage. And we laugh, but that's what Paul's talking about. Like, just because grace abounds, let's not let sin abound. Just because God is in the work of redemption, let's not make his job any harder. You don't have to go looking for disorientation. Can I just tell you, it'll find you. (laughs) We are in a broken world. It will be seasons of disorientation. So the question is, how do I respond when it comes? And please don't go try to make that happen so that God can do something. I'm going to wrap this up and we're going to move to communion and we can strike the, the TV if you want and the guys are going to come up and sing for us. What I want you to hear is um, relationship with God, walking with Jesus. Uh, You are not immune to surprises. Anyone who ever said that walking with Jesus is for wimps never walked with Jesus. Jesus said, look, you want to follow me? You got to pick up your cross every day. And look, that meant something in the first century. The cross was not a piece of jewelry that people wore around their neck. It wasn't a symbol that they hung in the front of their churches and got all warm fuzzy about it. It was an instrument of torture. Think about it. When Jesus said that, it must have scared people. But here's the reality. It's the greatest adventure you could ever be invited on. To walk with Jesus, to pick up your cross daily, there is no greater purpose that you can find in your life than to walk faithfully with Jesus. It's not easy, but it's the greatest thing you can ever decide to do. So the beauty of communion is the scriptures tell us whenever you come to the table that you ought to examine yourself. There's a lot for you to think about today. Maybe what are you clinging to instead of Jesus would be a good place for you to go. Maybe just asking God to be the God of all comfort in the midst of your disorientation. It's interesting, we pray for you before the service and uh, the people that prayed last night, the word that they got for the congregation was that there's people in the room with a broken heart. And unbeknownst, different people praying this morning, they came back and said, we prayed and what we really felt like is there's people in the room with a broken heart, deep pain and a broken heart. 
God wants to comfort you in the midst of this broken heart. My encouragement to you as we get ready to hand out the elements that you would just invite God into that. Maybe what you need to do is decide who are those people you're gonna text or call today and ask them to pray for you as you journey through your season of difficulty because that's what we can do for one another. So I'm gonna ask the servers to come down and begin to hand out the elements. Here at Grace, if you've said yes to Jesus, this is for you. If you have not said yes to Jesus, my encouragement to you is say yes to Jesus. It's really quite simple. If you recognize that your life is a mess, you recognize that things haven't gone the way you'd hoped they would go, then you just need to say, God, I, I need you. I need Jesus in my life. Would you be my Lord and Savior? And if you pray that prayer, then take communion as a follower of Jesus. We'd love to have you be a part of it. So we're gonna take the elements. My encouragement to you is just hold them. I'll come back up and we will take these together. But just use this time as we hand them out, just as a time of self-examination. Thanks for
The scriptures tell us that Jesus, knowing all that was before him, showed them the full extent of his love. I don't know if you ever stop and just think about the fact that there were no surprises in the crucifixion of Jesus. He knew every whip, he knew every nail, he knew everything that was gonna happen to him. That's that anguish that he was feeling in the garden. But knowing all of that, and I think sometimes what probably was more hurtful wasn't the physical pain, but the fact that his very followers were gonna abandon him. But knowing everything that was before him, he showed him the full extent of his love. The scriptures tell us that that night in that room, the upper room, as they were celebrating the Passover meal, that he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat it, remember me. It says in the same way he took the cup, Elijah's cup, the cup of sacrifice, the cup that had been passed around at every Passover meal for 1,400 years, the cup that looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. That was the cup he was holding, and he said, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. He said, this is my blood shed for you, and every time you drink it, remember me. But I just pray that you would help us to remember, not in our minds, but deep in our souls, that you loved us so much that while we were enemies, you came and you sacrificed and you gave your life for us. Help the radical, steadfast, said love of God to be drilled into our very soul so that we can journey through whatever life throws at us knowing that you love us beyond our wildest imagination. So the scriptures also say that when the disciples had finished, they left the room singing a hymn. So our tradition here is that we're going to sing together as a way of closing up the service after communion. So I just encourage you to stand and let's sing together. Sing together. You move mountains. You move mountains. You cause walls to fall with your power. Perform miracles. There is nothing that's impossible. And we're standing here only Standing here 
invite the prayer team to come down. Uh, we have people here that uh, would love to pray for you. If you're one of those people uh, who are just struggling with a broken heart, we would love for you to come down. We would pray for you. We also felt that there was someone struggling with pain in a right ankle. We don't know exactly what that means, but if you're struggling with pain in your ankle, God wants to... Uh, meet you down here with the prayer warriors and they're going to pray for you. So Lord, take us from this place knowing that you have made a way, that we are standing here only because of you. Help us to walk in that truth. Lord, thank you for the season of hope. I pray that we would be people of hope and that hope would just spill out of these walls, that we would continue to just have an impact here in this neighborhood and around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here. God bless.